listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. If you were going to kill a church, how would you do it? I hope that's not a thing you plan regularly. Uh, I hope that you didn't spend your yesterday thinking about how you would kill a church. Uh, But I think it's an interesting thing to think about. It's kind of an interesting thought experiment to do. If if you wanted to weaken a church, if you wanted to attack a church, uh, how would you do it? Uh, Now, uh, through history uh, and even through scripture, uh, we see the way uh, that this has happened at various times and in various ways. We can just go to the New Testament. Uh, We see a few different ways that uh, the church is attacked uh, throughout these pages. And so uh, I think there's at least three ways. Uh, One, through doctrinal decline, right? Through uh, giving up. Uh, the core doctrines of the faith, the the core truths that we uh, hold dear. Uh, That happens not just in the New Testament, it it happens today. Uh, There's another way that uh, that churches are attacked, and uh, it's a little more subtle, but it's through distraction, right? That they lose their first love. There's a third way that Uh, Not to say that the other two aren't important or or the other two aren't pressing, but I I think there's a a third way that that we're going to look at this morning here in Ephesians chapter 4. And I think this third way is is especially pressing uh, and and especially important for you and I today uh, to think about. And that's through division. That if you wanted to attack a church, if, if you wanted to kill a church, and if you were looking for maybe the quickest way or the easiest way, I don't know that, that doctrine is the way to do it. I think that distraction could happen, but if you want it to happen quickly, then division is where you would want to go. And what we see in Scripture, what we see here in Ephesians 4 as well, is just the high price that the Lord places on unity in the church and and unity in his bride. And so this morning, we're gonna spend some time studying Ephesians 4. We're gonna look at the first six verses. And and as we study this passage together, we're gonna see this, that our commitment to unity reflects our grasp of the gospel. Our commitment to unity reflects our grasp of the gospel. To make it a little more personable, a little more personal for you and I today, we can think of it like this, that your commitment to unity in the church reflects your grasp of the gospel. Uh, So look with me here at Ephesians chapter four. We're gonna read the first six verses. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, perfect, precious, powerful word, Starting in verse one, the spirit says to us this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that is true. Father, thank you for the gospel that saves. And Lord, I pray uh, this morning that we would love your word, we would love your gospel, and we would love your church more as a result of being here today. Father, speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple things to kind of preface our time before we jump in. Uh, First, uh, the reason that we are looking at unity this morning is not uh, because there is some kind of pressing threat of division in our church. Central is a remarkably unified church, uh, and invariably whenever a pastor preaches on unity, there's the conversation afterwards where someone comes up and says, hey, who's who's the guy, right? Who's who's threatening uh, the unity? Uh, And that is not the case at all. Let me tell you why. Uh, we are looking at unity this morning. We're looking at unity this morning uh, because that's the next passage in Ephesians that we come to, right? We want to be a church uh, that sits under the authority of God's word. And so what that means is that more often than not, uh, we preach through, we study through books of the Bible. uh, And so we want to submit ourselves to God's word. uh, And this is where we would, uh, the Lord would have us today. Uh, There is a second thing that I need to let you know. As you look at your outline there, if you grabbed a bulletin, there are only two points. Last time I only had two points. People were in counseling afterwards because there wasn't a third point, all right? Uh, I had small group leaders coming to me saying, hey, uh, you can't do that. Our our people need three points. Uh, So uh, there's only two points on there. The third point is Jesus loves you, okay? Uh, So if you need that third point, that is the point um, that you have. So as we look here at, amen, right? Jesus loves you. Uh, As we look here at Ephesians 4, uh, we're gonna see a couple truths about unity. And the first one is this, what unity looks like. What does unity look like? Unity might be one of those things that you've gotta see it to know it. One of those things that sometimes is hard to put into words. Uh, One dictionary defines unity with one word, says that unity is oneness. Unity is a togetherness. It's being unified and united. Now understand, when we talk about unity, we're not talking about uniformity. Uniformity is we all have to be the same. Unity is togetherness in the midst of diversity. Right? It's oneness in the midst of diversity. So what we're talking about here, we're not talking about uniformity, but we're talking about unity. Now, as we come to chapter four, there's an important shift happening here in the book of Ephesians. So the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are what we could say, we could summarize it this way, two words, gospel truth or gospel doctrine. So uh, Paul is laying out these great truths, right? That it is by grace that we have been saved. Right, that we have been chosen in him. He, he's laying out chapters one, two, and three, this great gospel doctrine. In chapter four, there's a change, and uh, four, five, and six moves from gospel truth to gospel living. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to take the gospel truth that he has explained in chapters one, two, and three, and he's going to apply it to our lives in chapters four, five, and six. Now we've called this sermon series Back to Life, and we're, we're talking about what is the cross, what does the resurrection have to do with us? But here's what I want us to remember, is as much as the cross and the resurrection is personal, it's also corporate. 
Right, so just as much as the cross and the resurrection has a bearing for you as an individual, the cross and the resurrection also means something for us as a church. Right, it means something for the way that we live, something for the way that we move, something for the way that we relate to one another as members of a church, as members of the body, as those who have come to worship King Jesus. Now in verse one of chapter four, we get an idea, we get a reminder of where Paul is writing from. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Now, when Paul says a prisoner for the Lord, he's not just talking figurative, he's talking literal, that Paul is writing from prison. He's writing from prison. He's been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. This is why Ephesians is one of the epistles that we have that we call the prison epistles or the prison letters because Paul is writing from prison and he's writing from prison. He's in prison because of what he has been preaching. Now, this is encouraging for us. This is something we need to know that Paul is writing from prison. He's ended up in prison which means that he is not a disinterested spectator, right? He's not someone who, who says it but doesn't live it. No, Paul preaches it, he believes it, and he lives it to the point that he finds himself in prison. He finds himself in trouble multiple times because of the gospel that he preaches, right? So Paul is writing this, and he's writing this as one who believes, He's writing this as one who has grounded and rooted his faith in this gospel that he is explaining. He, he believes it enough to suffer for it. And so here in verse one, we get the reason why Paul is writing. So he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Here's why he's writing. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the calling to which you've been called, this is your salvation, right? And so he's writing, he's urging us, he's urging the Ephesians, but then he's urging you and I as well to walk in a manner worthy of which we've been calling. Now, uh, which we've been called. That word urge, it carries with it an urgency, right? You, you can hear an urge or urgency. There's a seriousness. Uh, there is a, a, a quickness. There is something that Paul is writing. He's saying, look, I urge you, you, you must do this. You, you need to do this. He, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This calling, we've already said it's our salvation. Now, notice what, what Paul doesn't say. He, he doesn't say, I urge you to walk right so that God will save you. He doesn't say, I urge you to walk right so that God will love you. What does he say? He puts the indicative, the truth, before the imperative, what we must do. What he says is, because you have been saved, walk this way. Right? Because you have been loved, walk this way. He doesn't say, if you want to be accepted, obey. Instead, he says, because you have been accepted, live this way. Right, that's what the gospel says. Religion says that I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says I've already been loved and accepted, therefore I obey. Right, my, my heart has been changed, therefore I obey, therefore I walk it out. See, God has already loved them. And so what Paul says here, he says, look, if God's already loved you, then your life should be lived as a response. In, in other words, our salvation demands something from our lives. Right, that, that our salvation demands that our lives look different than before we were saved. And so he's, 
He's writing to urge the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what does this look like? What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Well, we see this in verses two and three. In verse two, we've got the manner in which we are to walk. First, he says, with humility and gentleness. Now, these are two words, but they're essentially one and the same. We can see that Paul's not trying to offset them because he doesn't include with the way he does with patience. These two words, they complement one another. They, they clarify one another. If we are to walk in lives, we're to live lives that are worthy of our calling, well, then we're to live with humility and gentleness. It, it doesn't mean, humility doesn't mean that you think less of yourself. It just means that you think of yourself less, right? It, you, you walk with gentleness. Now, in Paul's day, humility and gentleness, these weren't virtues to be celebrated. Right, we, we know that today in our world that pride is a problem, but we also understand right, that, that there, is, there is some kind of respect paid to the humble. Right? There, there's some kind of respect paid for humility. This is, this is what always gets me as I watch professional sports. Last night, uh, we were watching the, the Braves and the Orioles play, and the, the good guys won, the Braves won, so it was a, it was a good game. Uh, but as we're, we're watching this game, uh, they're hitting home runs and making plays. And some of them, they do it. I had a coach one time, he said, act like you've been there before, right? And so they do it, they do it respectfully. Then other guys, they do it and they celebrate and all of these things. And to me, when a professional athlete does something great, man, you get paid millions of dollars to do one thing, right? Like, like you should be able to do something great every time I see it. But there's something, there's something beautiful about restrained power, isn't there? There's something wonderful about the guy that hits the home run, runs the bases, and goes to the dugout. We understand that there's something beautiful about humility, but in Paul's day, there was nothing to be encouraged about humility in the wider culture. In Paul's day, if you were called humble or gentle, you were seen as weak. You were seen as less than. But then Paul, he writes here in the book of Ephesians, he says, walk with humility and gentleness. See, what we, what we see here is we see the way that so oftentimes, and this is still true today, the gospel takes the norms of the world and the culture and flips them upside down, right? That, that's what God does. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that our God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong things, right? So he, he's calling us to a life of humility and gentleness, but he doesn't stop there. He says, walk with humility and gentleness, right? This is where real unity begins. Real unity begins with humility. Without humility, unity cannot thrive. Pride causes you to seek what I want rather than what we need. You can think of it like this, that pride has all of the answers, but humility allows us to see that there, there may be a better way, right? This is, this is one of the problems that we all have, right? Pride is a perennial problem problem that we all struggle with is we look out at the world, oftentimes we can see what the problem is out there rather than what's in here. But I've got to believe that the reason that Paul begins with humility and gentleness rather than with patience is because what Paul is calling the Ephesians to see is that if they want to seek unity in the church before they look at everyone else, they need to look at themselves. 
right? Before they look at their fellow church members, they need to look at themselves. And so he says, walk with humility and gentleness because he understands that, that it's so easy for us to look the way Jesus said at the speck out there and miss the plank in here. Right? It's easy for us to be maybe driving down I-4 and someone cuts us off, right? And we see that they have a Florida State tag. We think that's the problem, right? That's the problem with America, right? Or maybe, maybe we're in the grocery store and someone cuts us off in the self-checkout line. We get angry and we see that they have a blue purse rather than a brown purse and it doesn't match their clothes and we think that's, that's the problem. But, but we don't stop to think we don't stop to consider is maybe the reason that lady cut me off is because her young son or young daughter or maybe her mother or her father is at home sick and needs whatever I have, right? That maybe the reason that person cut me off on I-4 isn't because they just wanted to ruin my day. Maybe it's because it's a single mom whose babysitter was running late and she's got to get to work and she's running late. See, humility calls us to to slow down and to look at ourselves before we look at everyone else. And Paul says to walk with humility and gentleness. Next, he, he calls our attention to patience. And this patience is a patience that is specifically directed towards other people. It's the idea of, of being able to bear up under provocation. In other words, unity exists when we love people who have not earned it. It's one thing to seek unity with people you like. It's another thing to seek unity with people that you disagree with. It's another thing to seek unity with people that you do not think deserve it. This patience, it, it has the idea of, of being able to bear up under the provocation of another person. So what this means is this patience isn't with someone that, that you, you just kind of can set over here. It's not with someone that you can just ignore. This patience is with someone who annoys you. This, this patience is with someone who has hurt you. This patience is with someone who has done something to earn less than love from you. And yet Paul says that we are to walk with patience. That we're to seek unity with people that we like and we're to seek unity with people that we don't like. We're to seek unity with people that we agree with and we're to seek unity with people that we disagree with. And next, Paul, Paul shows us the means by which we are to walk. So we have the manner and then we have the means. The end of verse two, he calls us to bear with one another in love. This is more than just a mere toleration. It's loving. It's, it's not a distant love but it's a warm regard and interest in that person. If you're familiar with the four kinds of love in the New Testament, this is an agape love. This is a warm friendship and embrace of another person. So you understand that this love seeks ways and reasons to love other people. Oftentimes we look for reasons not to love people, don't we? We're not actively out there looking for ways, hey, how can I love this person? How can I love that person? How can I love these people? Instead, oftentimes, man, give me one reason to not like you and I'm done with you, right? Give me one reason to not need to deal with you and we can be done. But what Paul says is this love, specifically this love for brothers and sisters, this, this love within the church 
it doesn't look for reasons to be offended. It looks for reasons to love. It, it doesn't look for reasons uh, to, to put up walls. It, it looks for reasons to break down walls. It, it looks for reasons to love other people. Now, maybe you say, well, how do we do this? Well, the picture of this is Christ. Right? He has loved us when we did not deserve it. So how, how, do we, how do we live with humility? Well, we, we live with humility when we remember that, that we were the unlovable ones. That, that we were the ones who were not lovely and yet Christ has loved us. That he has died for us and he has made us his own. Well, how do I, how do I live with patience with that person who has hurt me? Do you understand that when Christ died on the cross in our place, that he didn't die for people who were basically good? So think about it like this, that, that when Christ died in your place, in my place on the cross. He didn't die on the cross for us because there was something so great in us. In fact, what, what Paul tells us in Romans is that it, is why, it was while we were enemies that Christ died for us. And he goes on and we read that the patience, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. And so, how can I have patience? How can I have forbearance with someone who has sought to hurt me? Well, that patience doesn't come as I just decide that I'm gonna be a patient person. I don't know if you've ever decided that you're gonna be a patient person. It's typically when I decide that I'm gonna be patient that I'm the most impatient, right? It's typically when I decide, you know what? This traffic doesn't bother me. Uh, this long line doesn't bother me that suddenly things bother me. See, Jesus isn't just the model for humility and gentleness and patience. Jesus is the fuel for humility and gentleness and patience. If you do not have Jesus, you cannot have real humility. If you do not have Jesus, you cannot have real gentleness. If you do not have Jesus, you cannot have real patience. And you might say, Ethan, well, how can you say that? Well, I can say that because Jesus is perfect humility. Jesus is perfect gentleness. Jesus is perfect patience. And so if we are going to be humble and gentle and patient, then that comes when we are with Jesus and Jesus is in us. Now in verse three, we see the secret to unity. Look at verse three with me. But Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager, it's more urgency, right? We see this, this urgency once again. And, and every time I read this passage, I have to ask myself this question. Am I eager to maintain unity in the church? Am I eager to maintain unity with God's people? Because that's what Paul says here. He says, if you're gonna walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that means that you're gonna be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now there's good news here because notice where this unity comes from. We don't create this unity. We maintain this unity. Who creates the unity? The Holy Spirit creates the unity. See, it's good news that you and I aren't the ones that are tasked with creating unity because if I'm the one that's left with creating unity, right, there's some people I'm not gonna be united with. Right? There's some people that I am just going to have problems with. But you know what? Here Paul says that the unity isn't about your strength to create it. 
In fact, the, this unity isn't about your strength to maintain it. See, if the Holy Spirit is at work and alive in us, then the natural result is unity. Our God is not a God of chaos. He is not a God of division. Now, there's godly division. Right? There are times where we need to divide. If someone stood up and said, Jesus is not the only way to salvation, well, then we would divide from them. Right? If people start compromising on that, if, if they start living in egregious sin, then they will divide. But when a church that is rooted in the gospel, when that church divides, it shows two things. One, that their unity wasn't rooted in the gospel. And the second thing it shows is that Satan gets the glory, not Jesus. Right, the only one who is glorified by a divided church is the enemy. Right, God is glorified by a united church. And so it's our job to maintain unity. It's the Spirit's job to create it. And so how do we maintain this unity? We follow the Spirit. A church led by the Holy Spirit has nothing to worry about. See, a Holy Spirit-led church is a unified church. It's when we're led by other things that division happens. And this is true, not just in church. This is true in every area of life. When, when two people are led by two different things, invariably something goes wrong. If you're married, you, you know what this is like. If a, if a husband and wife, if they are not on the same page, if they are led by, if they are pursuing two different ends, two different goals, then what happens, a division cr comes in, right? Division creeps in. But if they're following the same thing, then unity happens. That's why Paul later in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, he's gonna talk about the high price of the gospel in family life because when the gospel is prized in your family, then unity happens. And so here, if we are following the Holy Spirit, then we will be a united church. It's when we're led by our own wisdom and our own preferences that division becomes normalized. But we protect our unity by being relentlessly committed to following where the Spirit leads us. But here's what we have to understand, is that oftentimes where the Spirit leads us is to a place that makes us uncomfortable. Oftentimes the Spirit does not lead us into a place of comfort. The Spirit leads us into a place that makes us uncomfortable. The Spirit doesn't leave us where we are. In fact, we could say it like this, that the Spirit is not committed to our status quo. The Holy Spirit of God is committed to our growth. More than that, the Holy Spirit of God is committed to his glory. Amen. And so the Spirit oftentimes leads us to a place that is uncomfortable. And so what that means is that if we are going to follow Jesus, if we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, then it means that we have to be okay being uncomfortable. And, and can I be honest with you? I'm struggling with this in my own life right now. I enjoy being comfortable. I have a spot on the couch that that's daddy's spot, right? Uh, because I am comfortable there. I enjoy being comfortable. But, but as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, God has not called me to be comfortable. He's called me to be obedient. He's, he's called me, he's called you to go where he follows, which oftentimes means going where it's uncomfortable. Going where it's not easy. Oftentimes we say, hey, I'm all about following Jesus as long as I can see where I'm going. 
I'm all about following Jesus as long as it makes sense. But if I can't see where I'm going, if it doesn't make sense, then I don't want to go. To put it in a way that I don't think any of us would say, but what we often mean is that I'm willing to follow Jesus as long as it doesn't take any faith. I'm willing to follow Jesus as long as I have sight. But what does the Bible tell us? The Bible doesn't say that we walk by sight. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And so that means that we have to press into the uncomfortable. And for many of us, I think the first way that this happens is we press into the awkward. You might say, well, what do you mean press into the awkward? I've been a Christian long enough and I've been a pastor long enough to know this, that the reason we don't share the gospel is because we don't like awkward conversations. The reason, the reason we don't invite people to church to come and see what the Lord has done is because we don't like awkward conversations. And can I, like this is a safe spot. I'm gonna be honest again. I don't like awkward conversations. I would love to tell you that I have no problem sharing the gospel with everyone that I come in contact with. I would love to tell you that I have no problem inviting people to church. I love the pastor. I think he's doing a great job, right? Uh, so I have no, like it's not that. The, the problem is, is that oftentimes my pride gets in the way. And I, I, don't, I don't enjoy the awkward. I don't enjoy the uncomfortable. That's exactly where the Holy Spirit calls us to go oftentimes, isn't it? Praise God that someone was uncomfortable enough to share the gospel with me. Right? Praise God that someone was uncomfortable enough to share the gospel with you or to share the gospel with the person that shared the gospel with you or to share the gospel with the person that shared the gospel, to share the gospel with the person that shared the gospel with you. Right, praise God for the awkward. Amen. Praise God for the uncomfortable. And oftentimes, right, we're glad that they're awkward and they're uncomfortable, but I don't want to be awkward, right? But what we have to know, what we have to believe, what we have to build our life on is that what God calls us to, he equips us for. And so the, the spirit that maintains the unity in us is the same spirit that, that leads us and guides us and is with us in the awkward. So it's not as if the Holy Spirit of God says, hey, go over there where it's awkward. He doesn't say go over there where it's uncomfortable. You know what he says? He says, come with me, Amen. right? That's the best news in the Christian life is that God never says go over there. He says, come with me, right? He says, I'm already there. I've already been there. I'm already doing something. Come with me. And so maybe, maybe you're, you're hesitant to follow where God's calling you because you think that you're going alone or you're not sure. Here's what you need to know this morning, that God isn't telling you to go, he's telling you to come, right? He's telling you to come with me. And so what does unity look like? Well, unity often looks uncomfortable. Next, we see this, we see what unity looks like. Then finally, we see why unity matters, but why unity matters. Now, unity in the church is more than just practical. Paul could have come to us and he could have said, hey, you should be unified because your life will be easier. You should be unified because your life will be more enjoyable. The, the church will be more fun. But notice that Paul's reason for unity in the church is not practical. It is first and foremost theological. Right, it's first and foremost about God. And understand this, always God is more important than you. 
right? God is more important than me. God is more important than us. And so Paul could have said, hey, be unified because your life will be better. Instead, he says, church, be unified because God is worth it, right? Because God is glorious, because God deserves it and God demands it. And so uh, verse four, he he begins to show the the theological basis for our unity. Uh, These three verses, verses four, five, and six, they really, they read like a creed. Uh, like, a, like a confession. There's seven, seven times Paul uses the word one. That repetition is telling us something. He's, he's driving home this idea of unity. And so in verse four, he starts off by saying there is one body. Unity matters because there's one body of Christ united in whole, not in part. There's no room for multiple bodies. When there's multiple organisms in one body, typically that means disease. Right, typically that means a problem. But what Paul is saying here, he's saying there's no room for division because there's one body that is united in whole, not in part. Right, my, my right arm doesn't get to do one thing while my left arm does another thing. Right, my, my mouth, well, sometimes my mouth says what my mind tells it not to, right? But, but, but you get what I'm saying, right? That, that our body works in harmony and so there is one body And so Paul says, look, there's not a body for people who like that kind of music and a body for people who like that kind of music. There's not a body for people who like this kind of church and that kind of church. There's not a body for for people uh, who like this and then people who like that. There's one body, and since there's one body, you know what that means? That means that that body better be unified. The body that is divided against itself cannot stand. It, It cannot survive. Next, he says there's one body and one spirit. That is, there's, there's one thing that enlivens the body, and that is the Holy Spirit. The, the church of Jesus Christ was born in Acts 2. It uh, was born at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit that enlivened the church. And the, the, same, the same Holy Spirit that enlivens the church equips the church, equips us for unity. I love the way verse four ends. Paul connects the work of the spirit with our salvation. He says, there's one spirit, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. It's the Holy Spirit that does this work. It's the Holy Spirit who works this out in us. Now, in verses five and six, we have this quick string of ones. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. First, he says there's one Lord. If there's only one head of the church, then there's only one that we follow. So that means that our unity, that we are united under the banner of Jesus, which means that if we're united under the banner of Jesus, we're not united under anyone or anything else. For Paul to say this, this is much a political statement. It is a theological statement. Because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Jesus was a political revolutionary. Uh, We just don't always realize it. Now, if I'm honest with you, uh, I I have uh, some concerns over the next year or so. I'm already, I've already started praying for this next election cycle that we will go into. And I'm praying for it. And I'm not praying primarily uh, that the Lord would uh, put candidates in place that honor him and love him and all of those things. Although I'm praying for that. My primary prayer is that in the midst of this next election cycle, that the Lord would keep Central unified. 
I can't tell you how many stories over the last several years that I've heard from pastor friends about division in their church, and it's not over doctrine, and it's not over sin, but it's over politics. Heaven help us if we're the church known more for our politics than we are for our God. And so I'm, I'm praying even now that the Lord would protect our unity, that our unity would not be found in Republican or Democrat or Independent, but our unity would be found in King Jesus. Right? Because that's all that matters at the end of the day. Right? That's all that matters. And I think politics are given by God. I think Romans 13 makes that very clear. The problem is, is that so many times, what do we do? We mess up a good gift that our God gives us. Right? And so we have to fight for unity even in the midst of those kind of things. So I'm already praying for that. I hope you will pray for that. Right? And so Paul says here that we have one Lord. Then he says one faith. That is, there's one way to salvation. We've been saved by and trust in one Lord who gives us his one spirit and makes us one with his people. He goes on, he says, we have one baptism. That is one covenant sign. That's one picture of the gospel that unites us. Here in just a few hours, later this evening, we are going to baptize a lot of people. I mean, I'm so excited about it. I, mean, I, uh, I am jazzed about it. I cannot wait. And the reason we make such a big deal about baptism is because baptism is a sign of the gospel. And one of the ways that it helps us as a church is that whenever we witness a baptism, when we celebrate baptisms together, we are being reminded of what unites us. What unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's one Lord and there's one faith and there's one baptism. And then Paul's final argument for why unity matters, I think is his greatest. Unity matters because we see this in verse six, there's one God and Father of all. God's oneness defines the church's oneness. See, a divided church says something fundamentally untrue about who God is and what he is like. Division preaches a false gospel. It, it teaches something untrue about God. And when we teach something untrue about God, well, that's blasphemy. My oldest son has dark hair tan skin and brown eyes. Now you might ask me, well, where does he get the dark hair, tan skin and brown eyes? And I could tell you, well, he gets it from his mother. He gets it from my wife. He gets it from Anna. The problem is, is that Anna has fair skin, blonde hair and blue eyes. So if, if I told you that, that Haddon gets his dark hair, dark skin and dark eyes from his mother, I, I'd be telling you something fundamentally untrue about my wife. I'd be telling you a lie. Whenever we allow division to have a foothold in the church, we say something fundamentally untrue about our God. We say something fundamentally untrue about the gospel. We say that the gospel's weak and ineffective. Because what we say is we say that the gospel can bridge the gap between me and God, but the gospel cannot bridge the gap between me and you. That the gospel can bridge the gap between this or that, but the gospel cannot bridge the gap uh, between me and them or between you and him or whatever it may be. And that's fundamentally untrue. The gospel is God's power to save. The gospel is God's power to reconcile us. And so Paul here, he, he roots this unity in a big picture of God. He says this God who is over all and through all and in all, this is a, a sovereign God. 
So unity built on anything other than God and the gospel is standing on a shaky foundation. See, things change. Culture changes. The world changes, but God never does. Notice Paul, Paul doesn't appeal to unity based on ease for the Ephesians, but he does it based on who God is. And so here's the question. How do we know our unity is built on God and the gospel? Real unity is built on shared truth, not shared preference. Unity built on preference is unity that will eventually crumble. Preference is change, but God's word never does. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. See, our commitment to unity reflects our grasp of the gospel. The Holy Spirit's call to be unified is worth it because God is worth it. And so here's the question. Do we believe that God's glory is greater and more valuable or important than our preferences? When we believe that, we fight for, not against unity in his church. One of the things I love about Central is in this room right now. If you, you look around this room, you will see people from different generations. You will see people from different backgrounds. You'll see people from different ethnicities. You'll see people uh, different in basically every way that you can imagine. And yet, what we understand and what we realize is that whenever we come in this place, we worship a God who is bigger than all of that. We worship a king who is bigger than all of that. One of the most encouraging things happening at Central right now uh, is that we are reaching young families. We're, we're reaching young families to a point that uh, just this, uh, the last two weeks, uh, in our kids' junior hallway, we had to take a storage room and clean it out and make it a, a room that we can now open up to have another classroom in because we had too many kids in one room. I love that. I'm excited about that. But here's one of the things that gets me even more excited is that whenever you walk down that kid's junior hallway, uh, oftentimes the people who are serving aren't just moms and aren't just dads, but are grandmas and grandpas. And oftentimes they're grandmas and grandpas that don't have grandkids in the nursery. They don't have grandkids in kid's junior, but they are there because they want those kids to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Right, I love the fact that if you were to walk down our Central Kids hallway upstairs, you could look in those rooms and you would see moms and dads in there, but you would also see senior adults in there teaching the Bible, encouraging students. I love that we are reaching middle school and high school students. And when you come here on a Tuesday night, you'll see moms and dads, but you'll also see some senior adults in here worshiping with these students and taking them to their small groups because they understand that whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. Right, that we are committed to being a unified church. And the way that our unity is seen is in our charging hard after the mission that God has given us. I love the fact that Central is not a church just of young families. I also love the fact that Central is not just a church of senior adults. I love that we can come in here and we can hear babies crying. And we can see young and old we can see black and white. We can see people from this background and that background, blue collar and white collar. And what we get is that Jesus is worthy of it all. Amen. Right? That Jesus is worthy of worship. 
He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of my worship. He's, he's worthy of their worship. We've talked a lot about unity in the church, but here's what I want you to understand as well, is that just as God can create unity in the church, he can create unity in your family as well. He, he can bring unity to every part of your life. And so maybe, maybe this morning you're saying, Ethan, I get unity in the church, but Ethan, if I'm honest with you, I haven't talked to my son or my daughter in weeks or months or years. I haven't heard from my mother or my father. I haven't heard from my brother or my sister or this friend or that friend. Here's what I want you to know, that if you want unity in your family, if you want unity at work, if you want unity, then here's what God's word says to you. To walk with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That that is the path to unity, not just in the church, but in life. That ultimately the path to unity is the gospel. Because in the gospel, we find real freedom and we find real forgiveness. And so don't think that the gospel is just for church. Don't think the gospel is just for lost people. The gospel is for Christians too. And the gospel is not just for the church. The gospel is for your family and it's for your workplace. It's for your friends. It's for your relationships. It's for your neighborhood. And you, you, you might be here and we, we've talked about this gospel my teeth, and I, I don't know what the gospel is. I, I've yet to believe the gospel. The gospel is very simply that Jesus lived and died on the cross in your place and my place, taking God's wrath for your sin and my sin. And he was buried in a grave. And three days later, he got up. He was resurrected. He rose from the grave. And his resurrection proves that he has defeated sin and he has defeated death. And so now, if you'll trust him, you'll have forgiveness and you'll have eternal life with him. And so maybe this morning you need to trust in Christ. I love this church. This church is not a perfect church, but our savior is. And our perfect savior can save you. Thank you again for listening to Central Church Podcast. For more information on how you can take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.